Good. So we are joined by the wonders of modern technology uh, with a whole bunch of our family. And so we're delighted to have you with us if you are in Inverurie, if you're in West, if you're in Bridgerton, if you're in Stonehaven, if you're in Mearns, if you're in Cafe Church, if you're in Lifestyle, and inevitably when you make a list you miss somebody out. And so if that's you, uh, hi to you as well. We say hi. Hello. 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 There we go. Okay, good. Um, If you've been around our church for, I don't know, a few weeks or a few months even, hopefully you know that we're following two parallel series at the moment in our sermon series. One of them is, well, in fact, they're both flowing out of our time on sabbatical. Uh, Taryn and I had a sabbatical in the summer, and we we, we just felt weirdly, strangely, beautifully clear about what we were to teach on over the next while. And one of them was to do with what it, what it actually means to follow Jesus. Do you know, Jesus isn't actually looking for consumers, and he's not looking really for a fan club. He's looking for followers. He's looking for disciples. And so we're trying to understand in a fresh way, what does it mean to follow Jesus? He's, he's asking us to pay a cost. And um, uh, he, he's expecting us to live differently, to love differently, to relate differently. And, and so we're kind of investigating that as a church family right now. At the same time as that, we're following another series which is about the glory of God. And we, uh, hopefully, if you've been around a couple of weeks, you'll have heard me speaking about this journey from captivity in Egypt all the way through to communion with God in the desert, uh, where his power and his glory just fall on his people. And we're saying, oh Lord, if you were to do anything in our church, we would so love if you were to do that for us. But actually what we realised when we were planning those two series is that there is actually one subject that is like the perfect intersection between both of those two series. Uh, And that's because if you were to follow either one of those tracks, you would hit it as a really big theme. And that theme is money, uh, generosity, stewardship. So for example, if we were to take the Jesus series, the cost series, what what you would discover pretty soon is that Jesus really, really cares about what you do with your money. Like with the, with the property and the possessions that he's put into your life, he, that really matters to him what you do with it. And, and I've heard it said that uh, the second most popular topic after the kingdom of God that Jesus talked about was money. I'm not sure whether that's entirely accurate. It might be the third or fourth most popular topic, but nevertheless, it matters a lot to Jesus. And so we, we were inevitably going to hit the subject. But equally, as I said a few weeks ago, the same is true of the, the Exodus series, that, that uh, this major theme, this major thread in the Exodus story is that they were to, to plunder Egypt of all of their silver and gold, and then they were to kind of wrap it up, carry it really carefully, not drop any of it, not wear it, not worship it, but instead just wait for the moment when God told them what to do with it. And so we were going to hit this series one way or the other, um, uh, but actually our senses as a leadership team that this is a kind of inflection moment for our church. It's an invitation that's being offered to us, which is to grow in generosity and stewardship in a way that we have not done before. 
Our sense is that this is a really, really significant subject for us. And I don't know whether you feel comfortable speaking about money. To be honest, not many people feel comfortable speaking about money. But actually, there's an invitation from the heart of God for us as we go through this series together. And so we're going to start a a little mini-series, probably two sessions, maybe three. We'll see how we go, uh, called Steps, looking at what steps could we take to grow in generosity and in our stewardship. And uh, um, I think you just need to hear my heart, really, which is, like, I really want to do this well. I mean, I want to do everything well, but I, 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 I really, I really want to pastor our church well through this series. And I've listened to a whole bunch of other pastors from around the world, the wonders of the internet, just teaching into this stuff. I've drawn from uh, some material from uh, Trent Vineyard in Nottingham, from St. Peter's in Brighton, from Columbus Vineyard in Ohio in America and others but my heart would be like do you know what frustrates me the most is that when I plan to do this series actually our church looked like budgets and all that were okay and now we're just in a particular moment of tension and challenge and so let me just kind of just be totally honest and transparent about that Uh, that was not my heart or intention when I planned this series but somehow in the in the plans of God we've hit this moment where actually there is a bit of a gap between our vision and our provision. There's a bit of a gap between our need and what we actually have. And and a lot of the reason for that is because we are in a really, really amazing moment. So let me just explain. We've got four or five really brilliant buildings coming towards our church at the moment, four or five. So we're looking for a a base for every place. We're looking for a place that we can use to do all kinds of stuff in the local community around every site, as well as being able to use it on Sundays, which actually would be amazing given the fact that uh, the use of public buildings by Christians is becoming increasingly under threat. And so we've got these four or five buildings suddenly coming towards us, which is putting the trustees in a really, really difficult position where we're going to have to make some really, really difficult decisions unless we see the income of the church significantly increase. But listen, you really need to hear my heart that, that my intention was to teach on this subject anyway. And actually what I the reason I'm doing this is, is not predominantly because I want so- something from you. It's actually because I want something for all of us, which is the freedom, the joy, the exhilaration, the adventure of radical generosity. And so that's why we're doing it really. Uh, um, we're we're going to be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let me just explain the, uh, the background to the passage that we're going to read. It comes, it's a letter from Paul to a to a a church in Corinth, and it comes in the context of an economic crisis. So in Jerusalem, there's been a famine, and the crops have failed, and everyone in Jerusalem and that whole region is struggling to find enough food to eat. But the Christians are especially struggling, and the reason they're struggling is also because of the persecution that's coming. And so they're being disinherited for following Jesus. Their businesses are being boycotted for following Jesus. Uh, You know, uh, there's no mercy or compassion shown to Christians who are starving because they're following Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul, in, in, in many ways, it's one of the great works of his life. 
He says, that cannot be that some brothers and sisters of ours are starving. Let's do something about it. He writes to the church in Corinth to say, hey, can we just start to put an offering together here for these guys? And and what he also does in that letter that we're about to read about is he raises up the Macedonian Christians as an example of uh, some people who have almost nothing, but even in that extreme poverty, they're, they're generous in their poverty, and he's writing to this church in Corinth that is actually a very well-resourced church. And so let's just read together. Well, when I say read together, I mean I read, you listen, but let's go for it. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, he says this. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my judgment about what's best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. And that's where we're going to finish our reading this morning. I'm, uh, I'm not usually what you would call an extremist or a radical. Like I, I, the, the honest truth is I own three cardigans and uh, I drive a, a grey Vauxhall Astra, you know, and I've never been bungee jumping and I don't want to. And in fact, I find it quite difficult to look over the handrail of a car ferry. Like, I'm not really much good with heights. Like, you're getting the impression, like, there there aren't really many areas of my life where anyone would call me extreme or radical. But if there was one area of my life where I would love to be considered radical or extreme, it would be in the area of money. I'd love to be known as a radically generous person. Um, And really for a couple of reasons. The first reason is, have you ever met a generous person that you didn't like? You know, like, like, we we all know generous people, don't we? The kind of people who, you know, they give you the shirt off their back. You only need to say, oh, um, I really like your jacket. And they say, here, have it. You know, I'd love you to have it. Or or you're... um, your car's broken down and they say, here, have my keys, just drive my car. Or, you know, you've got nowhere to stay, come and stay in our place. Or, or the kind of people who wrestle you, you know, to the ground to pay the bill in a restaurant. And I've just realised that's the kind of person I want to be when I grow up. You know, like, because the opposite is also true. We've also met mean people. 
you know, the kind of people, the, the last people you want to go out for dinner with. Because when the bill comes, they get out the calculator app on their phone, right? And they say, now, who had the dough balls? I didn't have a starter. I'm not paying for your starter. You know, or like, uh, who had the regular Coke? Because you know there's a sugar tax on that. I'm not paying your sugar tax for it. And you just think, oh, for goodness sake, grow up. And so, like, I want to be generous because it's the kind of person that I want to be. But actually, there's a more important reason why I want to be known as extremely generous. And that is because... Actually, what you see throughout the pages of the New Testament is whenever people had a dramatic experience of Jesus, like when they encountered Jesus in their lives, almost the first thing to change was their attitude to money. So just as one example would be Zacchaeus. And please, like if you're new to church in one of our sites or here and you don't know any of these stories, that's absolutely fine. That's normal. Lots of people don't know the stories in the Bible. But Zacchaeus is one person who has spent his entire life trying to get more money. And it's almost like the means, the end justify the means. So he's willing to rip off anyone in order to get more money. And then he meets Jesus. And within a few minutes of meeting Jesus, what's he doing? He's saying, do you know what? I'm going to give away half of my possessions to the poor. I mean, who does that? And then he says, look, if I've ripped off anyone, I'm going to give back four times the amount that I took from them. Can you see his attitude to money is transformed in an instant. And I'm like, do you know what? I've met Jesus. I want the same thing to happen to me. Or for example, in the book of Acts, 3,000 people become Christians in one day, which is a lovely problem to have, right? It's like amazing. And those 3,000 Christians know nothing about anything. You know, like, if you were to ask them, could you just explain the Trinity to me? They would not have a clue, because, of course, the rest of us would. But, or or um, the finer points of the atonement. or Like, they know nothing about anything. But almost the first thing that happens in Acts chapter 2 is that they just, oh my goodness, I'm just going to start selling my property. I'm going to start selling my possessions. I'm going to start giving all of my stuff away. And in fact, only two chapters later, here's what is uh, written about them. It says, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. Do you know what really struck me about that sentence when I read it the other week? was the, the kind of, the superlatives, the big words. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. Can you see, when people meet Jesus, something dramatic happens with their attitude to money. And you see the same in the passage that we read there with the Macedonians. The Macedonian churches, which are the churches in um, Thessalonica, Philippi, and Berea, they have next to nothing but they're living lives, it says in verse 2, of rich generosity. It's almost like they're, they're just like Zacchaeus. They've encountered Jesus. And because of that, their attitude towards money has changed. And so, yes, I want to be radical in uh, every area of my life, especially in the area of money, because I, that's who I want to be when I grow up. But more importantly, it's because actually I think in biblical terms, it's one of the marks of true discipleship. It's how you know whether you've really met God. It's how you know whether Jesus has done anything in your life. There's something about your attitude towards money and your behavior around money shifts. And I'm just an all-in, kind of both feet kind of a person. And so I'm saying, Jesus, if you did that for them, don't you dare shortchange me. Don't, you know, Jesus, if that's what happens to them, that's who I want to be too.
And so the question then becomes, what steps, see what I did there, what steps should I take if I wanted to become more generous? The first step I should take is I should receive into my life more of God's grace. You might think, well, generosity is a luxury available to people who are wealthy. You know, like, of course, if you've got more money left at the end of the month, then of course you could afford to be generous. But my problem is, I've always got more month left at the end of the money than money left at the end of the month. And so, like, how, how, how is that going to work? But you know what? Actually, what we see here in verse 2 is that Paul describes the Macedonian church's situation as severe trial. And then later on, he talks about extreme poverty. And yet they're able to be extremely generous. And so it seems like it's not just a luxury afforded to the wealthy. Or you might think, well, actually, generous people, that's like their temperament. That's like their personality type. You know, they, they've got generosity in their genes. They don't know how to not be generous. They've got an unfair advantage. But actually, these aren't especially noble people or especially kind people. These aren't super people. These are just ordinary people like you or me. He says, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches that's welled up in rich generosity. In other words, just as with any achievement in the Christian life, generosity comes from a grace that God pours into our lives and then works through our lives. God's grace, his unmerited unearned favor, his extravagant kindness is poured into our lives without measure and it just kind of like overflows the banks. It kind of bursts the banks and spills out into everyone else's lives. The truth is that it's ultimately God's grace that turns a stingy person into a generous person. It's a work of God. Or it's God's grace that turns a tight-fisted person into an open-handed person. It's a work of God that turns someone who is really selfishly concerned with their own needs into someone who is focused on the needs of others. So actually it's a myth that especially nice people or especially kind of temperamentally generous people or especially wealthy people are the only people who can afford to be generous. It's people who have received and experienced the extravagant kindness and grace of God. That's the first thing. So I just need to receive more grace. The second thing I should do is embrace God's maths. The story here takes a slightly strange turn because um, having already told us that the Macedonians are desperately poor, he goes on to say that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. And the language there is like they gave contrary to their ability. They, they gave more than could reasonably have been expected. Now, how does someone who is extremely poor give more than they than can reasonably expect it? It's a good question, isn't it? And again, we see actually similar actions happening with God's people throughout the pages of Scripture. And so I'm thinking of, for example, there's a widow who... Um, uh, Elijah comes towards her and he's really hungry uh, and she gives him 
a, a, a loaf of bread made from the very last oil and the very last flour that she had. And as she does that, God keeps giving her more flour and more oil. Or the, the widow, again a widow, interestingly, who, who puts two, her last two copper coins into the treasury. Now, why would you do that if you didn't know that God's maths is different from our maths? You see, uh, you know, in, in the mathematics of our day, what you might call humanistic or atheistic maths, this is the way it works. You basically say, well, I'm the only person who can provide for myself and provide for my family. And so whatever I can earn is all I have. And then when it's gone, it's gone. You know, it's like, it's just a closed system. I, I just have to generate whatever I can, and then whatever I've got, I just have to use, and whenever it's gone, it's gone. Well, Christian maths, God's maths, is actually entirely different in one very important way. Because, of course, I should provide for myself and my family, and I should be really careful with how I spend my money. But, or and, also, God can provide for his kids in whatever way he likes, and he often does. I heard this amazing story the other week of um, some vineyard pastors, a, a, a married couple who live on the south coast of England. And uh, they'd, for their entire married life, they had lived in, in rented homes. They, they'd never uh, been able to afford to buy their own house. But they felt God say to them one day that they should start to save some money towards a deposit for buying their first home. And so um, uh, as they were preparing to do that, actually about two weeks after they heard God say that, two individuals entirely independently felt God say to them that they should give this particular couple some money. And, just, and they said, listen, we just felt God say that we should give you some money and you should use it for whatever you want. And this, I don't know what you can imagine, but this couple was so encouraged. They were like, oh my goodness, that's amazing. We just heard God say that and then here's some money. And so they were able to open a savings account with the money that these two individuals had given. A few months later, uh, exactly a year ago, because it was at the National Leaders Conference in Nottingham for the vineyard, this, uh, uh, the, there was an offering taken at the conference. And the offering was for um, the provision for young people, especially because I, I, many of you will know the Soul Survivor Festivals finished last summer, and there's a bunch of different youth organizations that are stepping into the gap that's been left and starting uh, youth festivals. And the vineyard felt that, that we should step into that gap too and so we're starting a, a or actually moving a festival from may time into the summer called dti and so there was an offering taken for this youth offering and this couple they were sat in different parts of the room and they both heard god say to give some money towards that offering and so when they came together they said you're never going to guess what God's just told me. And the other one said, I think I know exactly what God's just told you. And they decided between them that they would put the entire contents of that savings account into the offering. They knew it was the Lord. They knew they had to do it. And so with their hearts pounding, they said, they uh, pressed send on their phone and they emptied their savings account, savings account into the offering. Nine months later, oh, this gets me every time. Nine months later, they were sitting having a dinner with a, uh, some friends of theirs, not part of their church, who they hadn't seen for some time. 
And uh, the couple, just over dinner, they said, actually, we've been sitting on a check. And we felt God say that we're to give you this check to, uh, so that you could buy your, uh, a deposit, so that you could buy your first home. And they handed over a check for exactly 10 times the amount they'd put into the offering. Do you see, God's math is entirely different from ours. It doesn't work like ours. He can provide for us in any way he wants. And actually, the reason why I really believe that is because that's been my story. Me, you know, Taryn and I and our family, that has been our journey. Um, every time I stand up here and speak about money, I, we always make sure that we're doing what we should be doing. And, and so, uh, you know, like we'll always just look at our giving and often increase our giving in advance of standing up and talking about it. Um, and so when it came to the, the big vision to spread out and start new sites in different places like Lawrence Kirk and, and so on, we were like, gosh, actually, we're already kind of down to the bone here. I don't know quite how we're going to be able to give any more money. And so we sat down with our kids and we said, well, like, what we think we should actually do is the money that we set aside every month for a summer holiday, what if we were to give that as a family to the offering?" And um, we said, look, we, we could just go and stay with the in-laws, go and stay with nanny and granddad every summer for the next three years, and they'll be delighted, and we'll be delighted. And, and uh, <laughs> I, I don't know what's funny about that, Keith and Glennis. Um, and so that's what we decided to do. So, so we put that money into the offering along with some other money that we'd found. And uh, do you know, over the course of those three years, we had the best three summer holidays we've had. And we were able to go abroad every summer uh, and, and experience like ultra extreme sunshine and heat. How the heck did we pay for that? I've got no idea. Money came in all kinds of different ways. God provided for us in the most extraordinary way. And we learned something so powerful about God's provision during those three years. But do you know what's even more important than me and Taryn learning a lesson during that period? It's our kids. The lesson that taught our kids is such a profound and powerful thing that will last them for the rest of their lives. Let me just do a little experiment here. If you're joining on the live stream, just pretend I can see you putting your hands up. Um, just put up your hand. It, many of you have been Christians for a long time. Put up your hand if at some point during your life as a Christian, when money was really tight and you were praying about it, that an envelope with some cash in it appeared in your life. Just put up your hand. Amazingly. Amazing. And now just uh, hands down, put up your hand if whilst you were really worried and praying about money, um, you got a, a pay rise or a, a, like an insurance policy matured or you found some money you didn't know you had or you, you got an inheritance. Money came into your life in some other way. Yeah. So let's not be afraid, people. Let's not make our decisions about money on, based on fear when God can provide for us in whatever way he likes. God's maths are entirely different from ours. Let's not be afraid. I should embrace God's maths. Number three, I should hear God's guidance. I think the thing I noticed the most when I was reading this passage over the last few weeks, and maybe it's because I really want to do this well, and I want to be a good pastor in this opportunity, I started to notice Paul's pastoral tone. Just listen to his heart. Verse 7. Since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, in, and in the love we've kindled in you. In other words, 
guys, you're doing so well. I'm so proud of you. I'm so encouraged by you. You know, he's really trying to, to pour in encouragement into their lives. And then he says, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. In other words, he's saying, guys, you've, you've grown, you've developed so much. You've kind of, Jesus is really at work in your life. It's really, really brilliant to observe and to watch. I'm so proud of you. But just make sure that you don't keep giving out of your walk with Jesus. Just make sure that your generosity matches what God is doing in other parts of your life. And actually, I think that's the tone of the teaching of the whole of Scripture when it comes to money. So, for example, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, he says this. This is like Paul's advice to a young pastor, and it freaks me out if I'm honest. He says, command those who are rich in this present world. See what I mean? Command those who are rich who are rich in this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Can you hear it? He's saying, guys, don't put your hope in wealth. That's not going to help you to flourish. That's not for your good. Put your hope in God. And actually, that's a sentiment that's been mirrored again and again by people who we know and love. So, for example, I'll never forget Pastor Sanna. Pastor Sanna was a friend of ours from Sri Lanka. I remember it must be 15 years ago, something like that. He came to visit our church one Sunday. And on a Sunday night, we'd gathered some of the students and young adults together. And I think he did some teaching on spiritual gifts, which is really, really powerful. And then just at the end, we said to him, hey, is there anything else like from the heart of God that you would want to say to us. And we just said, just feel free to just say whatever you think God might want to say to us. And I'll never forget it. He said this. He said, actually, there is something I want to say. He said, I'll just say this. You have enough now. You've got enough now. Remember also Leslie and Shanti Matthews, who are uh, mission partners of ours. We, you know, Some of the money that you give every month goes to Sri Lanka to help them plant churches and serve orphans and widows and so on in Sri Lanka. And um, anyone who goes to visit them from our church uh, has a pretty wild time because it's very clear when you're there that they are engaged in a spiritual battle. And so, you know, like, it's not unusual for, for kind of people to be thrown onto the floor, manifesting demons, foaming at the mouth. It's like, you know, people are being delivered left, right, and center. It's like incredibly obvious that demons are at work in that place and that that it's all about fasting and prayer and preaching the gospel that kind of pushes the powers of darkness back. And so when they came over to visit us one time, I said to them, just help me to understand, like, why do you think that we don't see that level of demonic activity in our culture, and they, they look really surprised. Uh, and um, Leslie said, actually, the truth is, he said, I find it very hard to be here because of how dark it is. I said, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you mean. He said, you just see it. Whenever you walk around the shops, this kind of fierce selfishness, this rampant consumerism, this kind of... Um, extreme attachment to material wealth and possessions. He said, it's so obviously demonic, I'm amazed that you can't see it. 
And I say all of that to say this. It's so important that we hear the heart of God through the scriptures and through people like that who can see what we don't see. That we hear God's heart. His heart is for us to flourish. The last thing is this. I should complete God's call. Uh, I'm sure I'm not alone in feeling a certain amount of pressure when it comes to buying presents for people. And the, the truth is, I think I probably just have quite bad taste in buying presents. So, for example, like, when, when uh, Taryn and I started dating, it was j- just before Valentine's Day. In fact, all of my friends said to me, don't ask her out before Valentine's Day. Wait till after Valentine's Day. You'll save yourself some money. But I was like, no, no, no. She's worth it. I can't, I can't wait. And so... On Valentine's Day, I bought her, which is like the best thing that I could think of for buying her, I bought her some scripture memory cards, which I still don't understand why that's funny, but she, she didn't love that. And then for our first Christmas together, I, I, I bought her um, a Fern Britain exercise DVD. Again, like I don't, I don't see why that's funny. And, and then for her 30th birthday, I bought her a handheld vacuum cleaner, um, which is what she asked for. But I didn't know that you're supposed to read between the lines. So, there's only one thing worse than buying rubbish presents. And that is meaning to buy presents, thinking about buying presents, intending to buy presents, but not getting around to buying presents. It turns out that it's not the thought that counts. They lie when they tell you that. (laughs) It's actions that count. And uh, this is really like slightly awkward moment in this letter where it turns out that the Corinthians have given a little bit of money, but they've said, don't worry, there's more on the way. And that's precipitated everyone else to give generously. But actually, it turns out that they didn't really see through what they'd intended to give. And so that's uh, why he says in verse 11, now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. And his point is, you know, you intended to, you thought about it, you wanted to, but just make sure that all of that intention and all of that thought actually gets as far as doing what you meant to do. And often I think that's true of generosity, that we intend to be generous, we mean to be generous, we think about being generous, we maybe even pray about being generous, but actually if we want to be extremely generous, then we need to make sure that that precipitates an action. Why don't we stand?